So friends, a, a quirk of my job is that I spend an inordinately large amount of time thinking about different Bible stories and how they line up with our lives and how they line up with the events, uh, events in the world around us. So as you can probably imagine, over the course of the pandemic, I've been trying to wrangle that, that one passage of scripture, that one Bible story that would help us make sense of it, that would imbue it with some sort of spiritual significance. And for a while now, I, I, I thought I had found the one. There's this one I've been toying with. I'm gonna lay it on you and you can let me know what you think about it after the service. Uh, so back in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, uh, there is this absolute gem of a story. And so at this point in, in the biblical narrative, the Israelites, they have uh, made their escape from Egypt and they're wandering through the wilderness, but they have yet to reach the promised land. And while the going is not easy in any sense of the word, they have indeed been freed from their slavery and God is supplying them with manna in order to sustain themselves. Every day it just kind of appears on the ground like frost. So the Israelites are trudging along, they're trudging, 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 but they begin to grow impatient with their journey and they start to grumble and complain and kvetch. And first they do it quietly under their breath just to themselves, but then they start to complain one to another and then at last they speak their complaints both uh, against Moses and against God. And they say this, they say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water and we are quote, disgusted with this miserable manna that you're giving us to eat. Ungrateful, no? Now while in the Psalms there is much to do about God being slow to anger, in this particular story, God is anything but. So immediately, God sends venomous snakes to chase after and bite and otherwise attack the offending Israelites. And they're being picked off one after another. Now, the funny thing about being chased by deadly snakes is that it has a way of putting you in a more contrite frame of mind, doesn't it? So in short order, the, the people go to Moses and they confess to him. They say this, they say, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Moses prayed to the Lord that he will take these serpents away from us. So Moses prays on their behalf, uh, and in response, God, God tells him how he can fix this situation. This is what God tells him. He says, fashion for yourselves a serpent made of bronze and affix that bronze serpent on top of a pole. And thereafter, if an Israelite gets bitten by one of these venomous snakes, but then they then look at that bronze snake, they will not die, but they will live. Weird, but Moses does just as he's instructed, and it works like a charm. Bitten Israelites who looked at this bronze snake do not succumb to the venom, and thus they are able to continue on their journey. All right, so this is just one, one of those weird and wonderful stories that you can only find in the pages of scripture. And if you're looking for a story that lines up with our experience of this pandemic, this one checks a lot of boxes, right? So we have people who are on a long and perilous journey, a journey that they're tired of being on, a journey that they're impatient to be 
over with. Then, while God hasn't been supplying us with, with manna on a daily basis between Amazon and Instacart and Grubhub, right? We can have everything that we could ever need just appear on our doorstep with similar miraculous ease. And then there is that final bit about the snakes. Now, this is the really beautiful part of the story. Because what's happening here with this bronze snake is that Moses is taking this thing that is killing the Israelites, he's transforming it, and he's turning it into something that can be used to protect them. Now, isn't that the perfect image for a vaccine? Right? You're, 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 you're taking this virus that, that is killing us, hundreds of thousands of us, transforming it and using it to inoculate ourselves against it. It's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. It's good stuff. And I'm telling you, I thought this was the story. I thought this was the one that was going to make this pandemic make sense. At least I did until I started doing the study needed for this, the sermon that we're doing, the sermon series that we're doing, rather, uh, on Jesus's sermon on the mount. And particularly when I got to studying the, the passage of scripture that Kate read for us this morning from Matthew chapter 6. And I gotta say, as far as Jesus's teachings go, the one that Kate read for us is refreshingly straightforward. If all of Jesus's teachings were this easy to understand, I'd probably be out of a job. But Jesus begins by cautioning us. He says, not to do our good deeds publicly in order to be admired by others. He then lifts up three examples of religious behavior, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. And in each instance, he, he encourages us not to be like the hypocrites who give alms and pray and fast in order to be praised by the people who see them doing it. And instead, he encourages us to do these acts, quote unquote, in secret. So with this teaching, Jesus is saying two things, I think. The first thing he's saying to us is that motivations matter. The motivations that underlie our behavior matter. We all know that two people can do the exact same thing, but for completely different reasons, right? We can offer our prayers during prayer time because we have honest to God joys and concerns that we want held in love by this community. Right? But we can also share prayers during prayer time because we want to be seen as, as prayerful, spiritual type people. And in the same way, you can give someone charity because you are genuinely concerned for them and want to help them out. But you can also give a person charity because you want to be seen as a charitable type person, or even worse, you want to make that person feel indebted to you somehow. So on the surface, those actions look the same. A prayer looks like a prayer. A donation looks like a donation. Well, on the surface, they look the same. They are very different things, in fact. And if you pray fast or give alms motivated by a desire for the attention or approval of others, says Jesus, that attention that you get from doing it is going to be your only reward. Because in doing so, you are gutting that practice uh, of any spiritual value that it may have had for you. And instead, he says, when you pray, fast, or give alms, do so out of an honest desire to know God and to love people. 
then and only then will those practices bear spiritual fruit in your lives. So our motivations for the things we do matter. That is the first thing that Jesus is saying to us with this teaching. The second thing that Jesus is saying with this teaching is that we need to be very conscious of where it is that we are getting our sense of worth. Because at the end of the day, when we pray fast or give alms to be seen by other people, right? we're not just doing it for the attention, are we? What we're really doing it for is that feeling of validation and affirmation that comes along with that attention. What we're really seeking after is that feeling that we matter, that we count, that our lives and what we do with them have significance and worth. And while Jesus does not condemn that that basic human desire for affirmation, he is suggesting that, that tying your sense of worth to what other people think about you is entirely wrong-headed. Because let's be real, attention spans are short, people are pretty self-centered, and you will find that they are very fickle. And if you are deriving your sense of worth from the people around you, you will always be left wanting. Uh, And so I think back to this article that I read by uh, a woman named Cynthia Heimel, who wrote for The Village Voice. Uh, And she worked in New York City, and she had this really unique perspective where she got to see uh, a bunch of people who are really famous now, but she got to meet them while they were still bussing tables and washing dishes. And she then got to see them ascend to the very pinnacle of success. Uh, And from this very unique vantage point, this is what she writes about them. She says, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Streisand. They were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now, but now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize that you want to kill yourself. You see, Sly, Bruce, and Barbara, they wanted fame. They worked and they pushed. And the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing that they had been striving for, that fame thing, all that attention that they were seeking after that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, It had happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable, she writes. So what is the alternative to finding your worth in what other people think of you? The alternative, Jesus suggests, is for us to find our worth in the fact that we are, before everything else, And after everything else that we are and we do, we are loved by God. God, who is not at all impressed by our outward outward shows of piety. God, who sees, weighs, and knows the things we do, even and especially in secret. If you ground your sense of worth there, Jesus is suggesting, you will find that that deep soul satisfaction that we are all seeking after. 
So that is the second thing that Jesus is saying with his teaching. We need to know where it is that we are getting our sense of worth. So why is this the perfect scripture to help us make sense of our pandemic experience? Here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that that in March 13th of last year, I sent out an email blast to the, the friends and members of our church saying that following the guidance of the CDC and our denominational leadership, we would be suspending all in-person church activities for, for two weeks, I said, two weeks. Right, we were so young and naive back then. I had a full head of hair, and I'm not even joking, I had a full luscious head of hair back in those days. But then those two weeks turned into two months, didn't they? And those two months turned into 20 months. And over the course of that time, I watched the people of this congregation take seriously the, the, the safety measures and health precautions that came out to us in dribs and drabs. Remember that those several weeks there where we were scrubbing all our groceries before we brought them into the house? It was kind of a wild time. And yes, we, we do have in this congregation a number, of people, a number of people who have been serving on the front lines throughout, in hospitals, in schools, and in retail. But those of you who didn't have to be out and about, you became very well acquainted with that Instacart. You transformed your, your guest bedrooms into offices. A lot of you added the part-time teaching of your kids to your already full-time jobs. Full-time full -time teaching of your kids to your already full-time jobs. You downloaded Zoom and Google Me on your phones and your laptops. And I like to think that you learned how to, to mute and unmute yourselves with panache. <laughs> And notably, notably, you all forewent in-person church, gathering instead online for Easter and Christmas and yet another Easter. And even if Zoom church didn't light your fire, because to be clear, it's better than nothing, but that's not saying a whole lot, is it? Uh, I know for a fact that, that even if it didn't light your fire, I, I didn't receive any emails or texts from people whinging about how we need to meet in person, threatening to leave and go to other churches that were meeting in person, all public health advisories be damned. Communications that I need to tell you, most of my colleagues were receiving from their congregations on a weekly basis. You should see the Facebook groups on them. People are going wild. They're going wild out there. But instead, over these past 20 months, you gave up and you sacrificed, you sheltered in place, you grappled with your fear and anxiety and isolation on a daily basis. And for all of that, for all of those things you did, you will never truly know the impact of your actions. You will never know. You, you will never know how many lives you saved by simply staying at home and not becoming a disease vector. The mayor of Medford is never gonna show up to one of our services to give us a plaque for not causing any COVID clusters, right? In other words, you will never, ever, ever receive the validation and affirmation of others for your actions over the past two years. But what this teaching of Jesus this morning is saying is that some of the most important things you will ever do with your life are the things you do in secret, hidden out of the views of all other people. 
And the fact that those actions aren't met with applause from the crowd does not diminish their worth, but in the eyes of God, it actually enhances their worth. And that is why I think this passage, this teaching of Jesus is the one that I want you to hear in relation to our pandemic experience. I feel like this is so, so important. And so friends, may you continue to do what is right and what is just and what is loving. Not because it makes you look good to others, but because it is good. In Jesus' name.